Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical conditions, and malpractice. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. When someone is drowning, most experts advise not getting too close. Instead, they say throwing a lifeline to the person in distress is the best option, because a person in distress will do anything to save themselves. This includes pushing any would-be rescuers below the surface, just for the chance at another gasp of air. In the 1850s, Dr. William Palmer was sinking under the weight of growing debt. Unfortunately, his family and friends didn't realize how deep William was in when they tried to help. He repaid their kindness by dragging them under and taking their lives. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and looking forward to assisting Alistair with some medical insight into our final episode of Dr. William Palmer. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on William Palmer, one of the most famous poisoners in the history of the United Kingdom. While he was only convicted of murdering one person, some estimates suggest that he killed as many as 14 more. Last week, we tracked William's early life, including his medical background and history of gambling. This week, we'll uncover more about William's secret deals, enormous debts, and sinister solution, using his understanding of medicine to poison the people closest to him. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1855, creditors were breathing down 31-year-old William Palmer's neck. They wanted their money back, and if William didn't cooperate, he'd likely be thrown in a debtor's prison. So perhaps William didn't feel any guilt when he fed his horse-racing acquaintance, John Parsons Cook, two pills containing the potent poison strychnine. When Cook died, William's debt would be even closer to disappearing. Poisoning seemed like the only way out. By that point, William had already explored several other options. Several months before, in late December 1854, William walked all over the small town of Rugeley, thinking of a suitable plan. The insurance from the untimely death of his wife nearly a month before had wiped out half of his debt at most. But with over £10,000, worth nearly $1.5 million today, still lingering, William was still in deep. So he turned his attention to his remaining relatives, primarily his siblings. They lived in different parts of the country and had varying levels of success. However, one stood out, his older brother, Walter. The 32-year-old flamed out even faster than William. Five years earlier, Walter went bankrupt after his factory closed down. Then, Walter turned to drink. A few years later, Walter's wife left, and Walter kept drinking. When William met his brother in Rugeley, he found Walter at the bottom of several bottles of liquor. William later noticed that when Walter went too long without alcohol, he experienced severe tremors in his arms. When people who regularly consume large amounts of alcohol stop drinking, they can experience withdrawal-induced shakes or tremors. Because alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, it slows us down and has a sedating effect. Over time, the brain compensates for this chronic sedation by upping its production and release of activating or excitatory neurotransmitters. This is the brain's adaptive way of combating the effects of alcohol, its attempt to keep us alert and awake. However, when a heavy drinker stops using suddenly, their brain continues to release those activating neurotransmitters that excite and stimulate the central nervous system. In other words, the brain keeps fighting against alcohol's effect, even though there's none in the system. This in turn creates severe agitation that leads to tremors and shakes, and can appear as little as six hours after an alcoholic's last drink. Tremors and shakes are also a common symptom of delirium tremens, a severe type of alcohol withdrawal that requires medical monitoring and observation. Delirium tremens are treated with medications that sedate the central nervous system, the most common and effective being Librium. Without intervention, delirium tremens can be fatal. Any physical sign of alcohol withdrawal should be considered a major red flag. And without an alteration in his lifestyle, Walter was inching closer to death with each drink. After seeing his brother's tremors, William believed that within a handful of years, Walter would succumb to his addiction. And William was always a betting man. So he conspired to get a life insurance policy on Walter. But there was a problem. 
William had no rights to a life insurance policy for his brother. An insurance company needed Walter's signature to approve William as a beneficiary. That's when William told Walter that he'd pay £400 for his signature on an insurance policy. William also promised to take care of Walter by putting him up at Talbot Arms, an inn across the street from his home. Walter hesitated for a moment, understanding the morbid implications, but he needed the money and agreed to sign whatever his brother needed. William's mouth spread into a wolf's smile, exactly what he wanted to hear. Walter inquired about the money, and William said the most he could give right away was £60, worth more than $8,000 today. The rest would have to wait. Walter looked at the smaller sum in his hand and seemed content with the promise of more. He believed his brother, the doctor, was good for it and signed the appropriate paperwork. To make sure his plan was foolproof, William ensured that Walter stayed sober for a brief period just enough time for his most significant tremors to vanish. William knew that insurance companies wouldn't hand out a policy on someone with visible signs of addiction. But even with Walter momentarily sober, most of the insurance companies William went to denied his request outright. Only one of the half-dozen companies William visited, Prince of Wales Insurance, agreed in principle to the policy. They were the same company that had covered William's late wife and Palmer's life insurance. The insurance company only requested that a local physician take a look at Walter first. Dr. John Harland, a local acquaintance of William, supposedly gave Walter a clean bill of health despite his history with alcoholism and some lingering tremors. Tremors from alcoholism are not easily missed, and it's odd that Dr. Harland gave Walter the thumbs up. This seems like it was a major failing of Dr. Harland's medical knowledge. However, it's possible that a long-term relationship with William made Dr. Harland willing to overlook any problems with him. Maybe he was aware of William's intentions. He may have even been compensated somehow for his complicity. It's also possible that William gave Walter a mild sedative before his physical exam. This would have calmed Walter's central nervous system enough to reduce or eliminate his tremors, hiding the symptom from Dr. Harlan. William may have even given Walter a drink of alcohol prior to Harlan's examination, as this would have also temporarily relieved Walter's withdrawal symptoms. Either way, William felt ecstatic about the decision. A few days later, William had a deal for a £13,000 life insurance policy, more than enough to cover most of his remaining debt. He only needed to pay the first annual premium of just over £700, worth about $100,000 today. It was a lot of money, but William was sure his bet would pay off. To increase his odds of a payout, William opened a bar tab at the inn which supplied Walter with a continuous stream of liquor. Walter took William up on his generosity and drank several bottles a day, tacking on to William's enormous debt. No one thought he wouldn't pay, 
Even as several months passed with no extra payment, Walter trusted William to come through with the remaining £340 he was owed. His younger brother, the physician, wouldn't let him down. On August 16, 1855, patrons of Talbot Arms Inn watched as William came inside looking for his brother. They observed William urgently climbing the stairs to Walter's room. Allegedly, a few moments later, William quietly emerged and headed back to his failing medical practice without acknowledging anyone. William later wrote in his private journal that Walter appeared very ill that afternoon. He didn't list what he believed ailed Walter or anything he did to fix the problem. Two hours later, a housekeeper found Walter dead in his bed. Within minutes, someone sent word to William about his brother's passing. William quickly returned to the inn. He wanted control of the situation. William believed if the insurance caught wind that Walter's death wasn't of natural causes, they wouldn't pay out on their policy. So William deliberately hurried the burial process. Within a few days, the local undertaker had handed Walter's body over to William. No autopsy was performed, and at least one doctor listed his cause of death as apoplexy. To make sure the insurance company couldn't easily get to Walter's body, William ordered the casket be lead-lined. William buried Walter without a respectable funeral. Walter never lived to see William pay him for his signature. After the burial, William was ready to collect his own payment, but he ran into complications that sent him over the edge. Coming up, William's attempts to collect Walter's insurance only lead to more despair. Hello, it's Alastair, and I'm excited to tell you about a phenomenal podcast show I know you'll love that dives deep into some of history's most notorious leaders. It's called Dictators, and every Tuesday, it examines the reign of a real-life tyrant, exploring the unique conditions that allowed them to seize control. Dictators have a never-ending thirst for power. Some seize this power through force, others through deceit, and all of them won't hesitate to eliminate anybody who stands in their way. We've covered North Korean dictators like Kim Il-sung, militant African dictators like Jean Bedel Bokassa, female dictators like Mary I of England, and many more. There are over 40 episodes available to binge right now that I know you'll find fascinating. Discover the governments that fell, the lives that were destroyed, and evil at its highest level. Follow Dictators free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Now, back to the story. The moment after the Prince of Wales Insurance Company received Dr. William Palmer's life insurance claim for his brother Walter, alarm bells went off. A £13,000 policy payout was huge, especially for William who, less than a year before, collected the same amount of money. In the fall of 1855, they immediately wrote back to William, saying they disputed the claim and were sending investigators to Rugeley. William had banked on Walter's life insurance money, and now, without it in hand, was back where he started, over £11,000 in debt. Before long, his creditors were going to come knocking, and he could only imagine what they were capable of. William feared they might harm him with violence or even worse, go to the authorities. In Victorian England, if debtors didn't pay, creditors could have the courts place them in a debtor's prison. They'd remain incarcerated until they paid off their balance. But it was a flawed system. Debtors weren't allowed to leave the prisons, which meant they couldn't find ways to pay off their debts, resulting in quasi-life sentences. With that fear weighing on him, William went back and forth with the Prince of Wales Insurance Company. But they stonewalled him at each turn. For weeks, he continued trying to get the policy payout, but nothing ever came of it. Financially, William was even worse off than before this scheme started. He was out the roughly £700 he paid for the premium on the insurance policy, the £60 he gave Walter, and Walter's bar tab. William had already been at least £11,000 in the hole and felt he was being swallowed by the weight of it. He fell into depression and soon returned to his last hope, the racetrack. On November 13, 1855, William headed 40 miles west to Shrewsbury for a horse race. There, he met up with a friend named John Cook. Like William, Cook had also inherited a large sum of money, but despite a rather wild lifestyle, he had yet to lose it. And when it came to the track, 28-year-old Cook always seemed to leave with more money than he brought. November 13th was a pleasant, albeit slightly chilly day. William hoped that it was the day his fortunes turned around. It didn't matter that he felt this same optimism hundreds of times before and came up short each time. Today would change everything. The pair arrived at the track early. They surveyed the conditions, looked at the riders and observed the horses. William then went to the board that listed all of the races. While scanning, William had a moment of clarity. Everything fell in line he found the afternoon race that would fix his fortunes. William went to the window and placed a bet worth a few hundred pounds on a horse named the Chicken. William had seen this horse and jockey earlier and believed they were unbeatable. To make things interesting, Cook placed his bet on another horse in the contest named Polestar. That afternoon, as the horses lined up at the starting gate, William's heart pounded. Then, in a flash, they were off. William's horse positioned perfectly as the pack thundered around the first curve. 
The horse wasn't so near the front where they might burn out by the end, or in the back where they'd get left behind. William lost sight of his horse as the group pounded their way across the back stretch. He closed his eyes and hoped that when he opened them, his horse would be in the lead. William took a breath, opened his eyes, and felt his heart sink. The horse he bet his last hopes on was nowhere near the front of the pack. Instead, Cook's horse, Polestar, led the group across the line. Cook erupted in an enthusiastic cheer. He just won 3,000 pounds, worth around $420,000 today. William's thoughts likely turned toward jealousy. Cook had all the luck, and he'd been left in the dust again. With his debt seemingly increasing by the day, William felt helpless. No matter what he tried, he sank deeper. That evening, the pair retired to a local inn called The Raven. For Cook, it was a celebration, and William kept up a happy facade despite his disappointment. As the night wore on, the pair continued to drink, but with each passing hour, William grew increasingly frustrated. When William couldn't stand it anymore, he left their table and retired to his room early. The next morning, William headed back to Rugeley, dejected. Unfortunately, when he made it home, more bad news awaited him. A creditor had left a note. William needed to pay a designated sum of money immediately or they'd go to the authorities. That would all but seal William's fate. Debtor's prison. William, already at his lowest and feeling the waters rising, reached a breaking point. He grabbed his medicine bag and headed back toward Shrewsbury. That afternoon, William reunited with Cook. They attended a handful of other races before going back to the Raven. There, they ate dinner with a few acquaintances, including a wine merchant and a law stationer. Everyone seemed jovial, but inside, William stewed. He excused himself for a moment. When he returned to the table, he had a round of brandy for everyone. According to some accounts, William carefully handed Cook his glass first before distributing the rest. William made a toast to Cook's success, and the group drank. <laughs> Cook coughed and said his brandy burned as it went down. William looked at the table in amusement. He grabbed Cook's glass and sipped down the little bit of liquid left. William laughed and said he didn't taste a thing. The group brushed off the incident as they continued eating late into the night. Eventually, William excused himself and retired to his room. The rest stayed at the table, enjoying the spirited occasion, but the good nature of their celebration didn't last. A short while later, back in his room, Cook felt ill. His stomach burned and he doubled over in pain. Moments later, he vomited uncontrollably. 
His two friends looked over him as he closed his eyes and prayed for the pain to pass. Basically, Cook's symptoms looked like the result of some kind of poisoning, but they were too general to be attributed to anything concrete at this point. Cook's out-of-control vomiting could have even looked like food poisoning, especially if it started around three hours after his last meal. However, with food poisoning, sharp stomach pain usually isn't an initial symptom. Sometimes it'll come, but only after a long period of vomiting and retching due to the protracted bowel and abdominal strain. If we're considering poisons, one likely candidate would have been arsenic. This deadly chemical was in a variety of products in Victorian England and was a common weapon of murder at the time. On top of this, it mimicked the symptoms of cholera, the bacterial disease we talked about in part one of our story, that was so prevalent at the time. The sudden onset and nature of his symptoms also line up with those of Ann Palmer and Leonard Bladen, who both died several days after getting sick. Arsenic causes the abdominal pain, vomiting, and nausea that all three of these people experienced. To Cook, the answer seemed obvious. In between bouts of vomiting, he turned toward his friends and said William poisoned him. The two exchanged questioning glances, but didn't think much of it. To them, these were the words of a man in distress and not to be taken seriously. Cook finally fell asleep early the next morning. When he woke up, he still felt unwell, but for the most part, his symptoms subsided. William went back to the track that morning while Cook lay in his bed. William wanted one final shot at making the money he owed his creditors. But he wasn't so lucky. He left the races empty-handed yet again. When William returned to Cook's room at the Raven, he found his racing friends sitting up in bed looking slightly better. That afternoon, the pair headed for Rugeley. When they got to town, Cook booked a room at the Talbot Arms Inn, the same place Walter Palmer had died just three months before. Cook still felt lousy, so he went to lay down. On Sunday morning, William went to his friend, Dr. Bamford, and asked for two sedative pills. He pocketed the drugs and headed back to the inn, where he ordered soup for Cook. Cook happily accepted the food, but minutes later, vomited again. The pain he felt in his gut returned, and he lay in bed clutching his stomach. The chambermaid, Elizabeth Mills, took the half-eaten bowl back down to the kitchen. Mills curiously took a sip, but didn't taste anything odd. However, a moment later, she felt ill. Mild nausea came over her and she needed to lay down. Cook spent the rest of the day in bed. He experienced fever, aches, and more vomiting. All the while, William watched over Cook. He didn't want any intervention. With Cook incapacitated, William headed towards London early the next morning with his friend's accounting ledger. No one suspected a thing, and William was about to be several thousand pounds richer. William walked down the cobblestone streets of London before entering into a small pub. 
The doctor met with one of Cook's associates and collected almost £2,000 on Cook's behalf. With the cash in hand, William quickly left the city and headed back to Rugeley. There, William paid off his most urgent £800 debt. He was still at least £11,000 in the hole, but it was a start. With Cook's ledger in his possession, William hoped to make an even larger dent. But he wasn't done spending yet. According to another Rugeley physician, Dr. Salt, William allegedly walked into his practice and bought two pills worth of strychnine that afternoon. This is a really dangerous chemical. In mammals, strychnine works by interrupting the nerve signals that control muscular function. This causes intense, painful muscle spasming that ultimately prevents contracted muscles from relaxing. When this happens to the muscles of the respiratory system, the body's oxygen supply gets cut off, leading to death from asphyxiation. For a strychnine-induced death to occur, humans only need to ingest about 30 to 60 milligrams, which is a pretty small amount. For comparison, 30 to 60 milligrams of strychnine would look like a capsule of common medications like Advil or Tylenol. If Cook had been given a dose around this size, he would have likely been dead in under an hour. Despite its deadliness, however, strychnine was often used medicinally in the past. In very tiny doses, it was used to increase appetite, speed digestion, and treat stomach issues like nausea and diarrhea. Given this time in history, it wouldn't have looked odd if William purchased this poison for treatment purposes, but he probably didn't plan on using it to help Cook in any way. With Cook's ledger and the strychnine pills in his possession, William headed back to Talbot Arms to see Cook. Cook had stopped throwing up, but pain radiated from his stomach. For 28, he looked awful. When no one else was in the room, William allegedly handed Cook the two pills, claiming they were sedatives given to him by Dr. Bamford. He advised Cook to only take them when the pain was too much to bear. Cook gazed up at his friend, who was there for him now in his lowest moment. William smiled down at Cook, assuring him it wasn't a problem. As a doctor, he felt strongly that he should be there to help others. He bid Cook farewell and returned to his home across the street. But while William had a pleasant evening, Cook did not. He tossed and turned, unable to get comfortable because of the pain. Cook survived the night, but he looked dreadful when William came to visit the next afternoon. In a bid to cover his tracks, William called on the local physician, Dr. Jones, to stay with Cook. Dr. Jones watched over Cook late into the night while his condition further deteriorated. Sometime that afternoon, it's believed Cook may have taken the pills William gave him, and Jones didn't intervene. Jones appeared to wholeheartedly believe in William's medical opinion and let the sinister plot pass right under his nose. To be fair, beyond testing the pills on himself, Jones wouldn't have been able to see what they contained anyway. John Cook was completely at Dr. William Palmer's mercy. Just past midnight, Cook's muscles spasmed and he howled in pain, 
His heart beat wildly and sweat covered his body. Slowly, Cook's back arched painfully backward, completely out of his control. He called out for William in desperation, but his friend was nestled in his bed across the street. At 1 a.m. on Wednesday, November 21st, 1855, John Cook suddenly went still. Nothing Dr. Jones did could bring Cook's pulse back. Coming up, authorities come calling while William makes a final attempt to get out of debt. Now, back to the story. On the morning of November 21st, 1855, 31-year-old Dr. William Palmer went to check on his friend, John Cook. When William entered Cook's room, he found Dr. Jones standing next to a body frozen like a bow, in a condition known as opisthotonus. Apisthotonus is a rare condition that causes somebody's body to arch backward. It's characterized by a state of major hyperextension and spasticity, which causes the muscles to stiffen and become rigidly tight. It's also caused by poisoning, and strychnine is one of the main culprits here. The toxicity of strychnine causes the muscles to spasm and lock, and people who are dangerously exposed often become physically contorted and unable to move. If someone dies in a contorted position, like Cook, rigor mortis will maintain that position for a good while after death. Given what we know of the circumstances, it seems very likely that Cook's apisthadness was a sign of strychnine poisoning. Still, William acted coy as Dr. Jones explained how Cook died in the middle of the night. William moved quickly to square away Cook's body and estate. The elderly Dr. Bamford, William's close friend and supposed unbiased third party, handed over a death certificate for Cook that stated he died of apoplexy, the same diagnosis Dr. Bamford gave William's mother-in-law, who died in his home six years before. While it's impossible to fully comment on someone's medical expertise 150 years later, Dr. Bamford's analysis seems suspect. Without an autopsy, it wouldn't have been possible to see if someone died from apoplexy. Internal bleeding and stroke show no physical or external signs, so it's strange that Dr. Bamford made this conclusion. It's also bizarre that he ignored Cook's obvious apisthadness. This kind of severe contortion isn't consistent with a death from hemorrhage or stroke. People who die from apoplexy do sometimes die in awkward positions, but this wouldn't likely be the case for someone who was bedridden. Also, these awkward positions would never be as dramatic looking as those found in apisthadness victims. Shortly after Dr. Bamford handed over Cook's questionable death certificate, Dr. Jones reached out to Cook's stepfather. Two days later, on November 23rd, they arrived in Rugeley. William met with Cook's stepfather, a Mr. Stevens, and in a bid to receive more funds, claimed Cook owed a debt of £4,000. Stevens hesitated. He knew Cook well and had never heard of any such debt. 
Upon further investigation, Stevens found his stepson's ledger to be missing and couldn't locate any trace of Cook's recent £3,000 track winnings. Both Dr. Jones and Stevens thought Cook's death was suspicious, and as it turns out, so did many Rugeley locals. While William was given the benefit of the doubt with his wife and brother, a third person close to him dying signaled it was all more than just coincidence. Authorities launched an inquiry into William's involvement in Anne Palmer's, Walter Palmer's, and John Cook's deaths. On November 26th, five days after Cook's death, local doctors performed an autopsy on his body. Allegedly, the coroner wasn't present. Instead, two local doctors performed the examination in a room full of observers. One of those observers was William Palmer himself. As the procedure got underway, the doctors stated their intention of trying to get samples of Cook's stomach contents. Those would be sent to the coroner for additional testing to see if there was any poison in Cook's system. If Cook's post-mortem exam had been conducted a day or two after his death, instead of five days, his stomach contents would have been invaluable evidence. However, when it comes to Cook's autopsy, an examination of his stomach wouldn't likely have shown traces of strychnine. This is because strychnine is rapidly absorbed in the stomach and is dispersed through the bloodstream in as little as 15 minutes. The poison then gets passed through the urine within six hours, and after 24 to 48 hours, there's no trace of it in the body. Unfortunately for all involved, William Palmer had other plans. Shortly after the physicians extracted the majority of Cook's stomach contents and put them in a jar, William took them out of the room for what he said was safekeeping. According to one version of events, after the procedure was over, the other doctors convinced William to return the jar. However, when he brought back the stomach contents, the jar's seal had been cut open, potentially compromising the evidence. What little contents remained from Cook's stomach were sent to the coroner for testing. Unfortunately, with such a small sample, they weren't able to tell if there was any poison in Cook's system when he died. Though William thought he could breathe a sigh of relief, his troubles weren't over. The authorities were still curious about the deaths of Anne and Walter Palmer. Later that week, authorities exhumed their bodies for examination. The results of Anne's autopsy were limited. Her body was buried for over a year and much of her remains had decomposed. Walter's corpse wasn't in much better shape, for autopsy purposes. When, after much effort, examiners finally punched a hole in the thick lead-lined casket, the room filled with the smell of death. His body was bloated and falling apart. Little information was gathered about Walter's cause of death, much to the delight of William, who still held out hope for an insurance payment. But this lack of evidence didn't mean he was in the clear. Investigators went around Rugeley asking questions about William. In the process, they ran into many residents who had suspicions about the local doctor. One of them was Dr. Salt, who described the day William picked up the strychnine. The investigators' ears 
perked up. It was just the information they needed. On December 15, 1856, the inquiry stated that they believed William had killed John Cook with strychnine poison and suggested he be brought up on charges. Shortly after, William was arrested. He was caught by surprise. He had truly believed everything was about to turn around. Authorities placed William in a local jail while he awaited his day in court. In May 1856, William finally faced a trial, but not in Rugeley. His defense team argued that William couldn't receive a fair trial in the small town. So the trial was moved to the Old Bailey Courthouse in London, where the jury wouldn't have any preconceived notions of Dr. William Palmer. While the trial started quietly, that didn't last long. Once the local press got wind of the story, William's image was plastered all over town. Nearly everyone in London heard of the Rugeley Poisoner. Every detail of William's life was exposed, from his early education to the deaths of his wife and children. Meanwhile, inside the walls of the Old Bailey, the prosecution made their case. There was little physical evidence, but the prosecution had a compelling tale. They discussed William's gambling addiction and staggering debts still worth upwards of £11,000. William professed his innocence in court, but the coincidences stacked up. His racing partner, Leonard Bladen, dying in his home with his ledger missing. Anne Palmer's death only months after a life insurance policy was handed out. Walter's death under similar circumstances, and now finally, John Cook. Then, Dr. Salt from Rugeley came to London and testified that William bought strychnine from him. That sealed the deal. After 12 days of testimony, the trial ended. The jury didn't even deliberate for a full day before convicting William of John Cook's murder. The judge sentenced William to death. William remained stone-faced. All of his scheming had landed him at death's door. And now, no amount of strategy or legal maneuvering was getting him out. William found himself sitting in a jail cell, but it was only punishment for the death of one person. When it's possible, he killed many more. I personally believe he killed more than one person, and this comes from the extreme measures we saw him take to avoid being sent to debtor's prison. I also feel the coincidence behind these deaths is far too overwhelming, especially when coupled with the life insurance policies he took out on his wife and brother. However, I can't say for sure. After 150 years, it's impossible to pin down the true extent of William's actions. It's fascinating that he had an addiction to gambling at the horse races, something that was largely due to his neurochemistry. This is interesting because it's the same neurochemistry and associated behavioral tendencies that motivated him to gamble, and gambling on getting away with murder. We'll never know for sure how many deaths Dr. William Palmer caused. However, what happened next was indisputable. On June 14, 1856, guards grabbed 31-year-old William out of his cell. 
they marched him towards the gallows outside of Stafford Prison. William heard the sounds of a large crowd as he made his way to the platform. As he mounted the steps, a truly remarkable sight unfolded in front of him. There were tens of thousands of people crowding around waiting for his death. Authorities asked William if he had any last words. To the audience's dismay, he had no speech prepared, though he meekly maintained his innocence. As William walked over the trap door, legend has it that he asked, is it safe? Authorities placed a cover over William's head before the noose came down. In the darkness, the crowd noise swelled. To William, it must have sounded like he was at the horse races. Minutes later, William Palmer was pronounced dead. He was only convicted of killing one person, but his legend grew over the years. The Rugely Poisoner is one of the most famous murder cases in UK history. Famous author Charles Dickens said William was the greatest villain that ever stood in the Old Bailey. Dr. William Palmer was never able to get out from under the dire situation he brought upon himself. Unfortunately, those closest to him were dragged down too. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast shows, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trickvedorte, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Don't forget to check out Dictators. Every Tuesday, we go deep into the minds of some of history's most despised despots. You'll get insight into their rise to power and the impact of their downfall. Search for Dictators in the Spotify app and listen free today.